Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, folks. Before we get started, I've got a quick trailer from our friend Royfield Brown at 10 American Presidents. Nixon's the one. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. Three shots were heard to ring out as Kennedy and Mrs. Kennedy rode in the back seat of the open car. And Mrs. Kennedy shouted, oh no. The motorcade sped on. Ten American presidents, from Washington to Obama. Yes, we is a podcast narrated by guest hosts, where the life and legacy of the 10 most pivotal American presidencies is explored in depth and in color. My name is Dan Carlin. I'm Mike Duncan. My name is Zach Twomley. Each show is intercut with a musical score, and where possible, archive news clips to set you in the time of that presidency. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King. As America concludes its 2020 election cycle, this month we present the election of 1960, a closely contested election where the telegenic Democratic Senator John F. Kennedy defeated incumbent Vice President Richard Nixon. Can you imagine if this country elects a Democratic House and elects Dick Nixon, Republican President of the United States? And then Lyndon Johnson and Sam Rayburn go over to meet with him and sit down with Dick Nixon? who in 1954 called me a liar. Some Republicans and many journalists believe that Kennedy benefited from vote fraud, especially in Texas, where his running mate Lyndon B. Johnson was senator, and in the northern state of Illinois. This is Vince Garrity broadcasting from outside of the Chicago Stadium in the heart of Chicago, where we are watching one of the finest political parades seen in this country as a salute to Senator John F. Kennedy. More than 300 beautiful floats Bands and marching units are proceeding down a two-mile road here on Madison Street in Chicago under the leadership of Chicago's mayor, Richard J. Daley. These two states were important because if Nixon had won both, he would have earned 270 electoral votes, one more than the 269 needed to win the presidency. In Illinois, still unfinished, Kennedy ahead 34,850 precincts in Illinois still out, 400 of them in Cook County, a half in Chicago. Kennedy won a 303 to 219 electoral college victory and is generally considered to have won the national popular vote by just under 113,000 votes, a margin of just 0.17%. Relive this election. 
the first election of the modern television age, on 10 American presidents this month. As I look at the board here, the, there are still some results still to come in. If the present trend continues, Senator Kennedy will be the next president of the United States. <laughs> Episode 71, which is uh, part two of the Potiversary special. Uh, as I said last time out, these Potiversary specials are basically just me uh, bringing in the segments that I did for Agoraphobia in years past. Uh, Agoraphobia is, of course, the uh, October special that we do every year as part of the Agora Podcast Network. We do it on the main Agora feed. And uh, this is all sort of functioning as an ad to go get you to go check out the feed and listen to the past agoraphobia stuff done by everyone else. These are the things that I've done. I'm not including this year's segment. And, and uh, I should just say that uh, every year we each do like 10-20 minute segments and then that gets compiled into whole episodes and put up. This episode's going to be a bit different uh, because... It's a crossover between myself, Daniel, and Cloud from um, Cannonball, and their episodes are gigantic, and so this episode is gigantic. Uh, and then there's one other small little segment right at the end, uh, so that's going to be this episode. Now, before I get to that, I have a, a rather unpleasant, unfortunate duty that I need to attend to. Um, and, uh, this is, uh, disturbing and unfortunate, not in a ha-ha Halloween kind of way. This is a very serious thing. Um, within the last week or two, uh, serious allegations came to light that Ryan Stitt of the History of Ancient Greece podcast was, in fact, a sexual predator. And let me be clear here. I use the word allegations only in the sense that nothing has been tried in a court of law. I've reviewed the evidence and consider the allegations credible, in my opinion. I believe the women involved. While I'm not going to go over the allegations in detail, uh, if you want more information, I suggest you head over to Twitter and check out Mike Duncan's feed for more information. Uh, Mike has used his platform to compile a list of the available evidence and to support the victims, for which we are all immensely grateful. Uh, of course, the, peop the true heroes in the situation are the women who had the courage to come forward. The first and most important thing to say here is that while I had no direct role in what happened, I care very deeply about the history podcasting community. Um, I'm a leader to some extent, 
I'm also a member. I listen to lots of podcasts. I'm on Facebook all the time. I'm on Twitter all the time talking to people. This means a lot to me. And I am very upset that women are not safe in the history podcasting community. To all those affected, I am so sorry this happened to you. Going forward, we history podcasters um, are going... Are, we're committed to doing whatever we can to redouble our efforts to make sure that this community can be safe to the best of our abilities to make it that way. To that end, if anyone needs to talk about what's happened, you know how to contact me. I say it in every episode. If you want to talk to someone that's not a weird white dude who talks to his cat in his basement, the History Podcasters Discord channel has set up a, um, a support chat for anyone affected. If you head over there and direct message the admins, which is uh, Fry and Bree from Pontifax, uh, they will offer you any assistance that they can. If you're not on Discord, there are plenty of podcast hosts that are here and willing to help. It's been a huge outpouring of support from the community, which is something of a silver lining, though not a big one. But uh, off the top of my head, um, again, Fry and Bree from Pontifax have been very involved in this. They're there to talk uh, if you need to, if you're interested. Uh, Sam Hume and Mike Duncan and Raven from Tiny Vampires, um, they've been a big help as well. They've all got standing offers to talk. Uh, if you're in the more in the classics world, because there's sort of this weird Venn diagram in the situation between classics Twitter, which includes PhD candidates with no podcasts, and then podcasters. Um, but Dominic Perry of the History of Egypt podcast who's all, has also offered to talk to anyone in the classics world who needs more of a, a classics-oriented kind of support. In any case, my primary concern is with... Uh, with those affected by this situation, how to help get them justice, and how to help them uh, continue to feel like the absolutely vital part of our community that they were, are, and always will be. Uh, if you have any information about this, if, if you're one of those affected who hasn't necessarily come forward, uh, get in touch with any of the people that I just mentioned, or you can go on Twitter. There's a, an investigation ongoing, uh, and... Uh, we can put you in touch with someone. Second thing to say is that Ryan Stitt was a generous colleague, a mentor to many, and I considered him a personal friend. Unbeknownst to me, he also severely abused the trust placed in him by the history podcasting and classics community to engage in the harassment of dozens of women over the past few years. It's a grim irony that in my last real episode, I dealt with the issues of sexual assault, rape, and harassment uh, that were very similar to these. And in it, I also call back to the fact that Ryan Stitt helped me with some of the groundwork for these women's history episodes. In fact, I've pointed people in Ryan's direction on many occasions in this show. I try and be generous to my colleagues, and I suppose this is one of the downsides of that. Uh, I've also engaged in several crossovers with Ryan on other platforms. So while my, again, my primary concern is with the victims directly, I do have a responsibility as part of that concern to deal with the ghost of Ryan Stitt that continues to haunt my own work. 
After several days of considering this, here is my decision. Hopefully it's acceptable to everyone out there. If not, drop me a line. I'm very much open to reconsidering it. There are two parts to this. In terms of crossovers that I've done with Ryan in other formats, I will begin finding them and removing them uh, to the best of my ability. This includes crossovers I did with him about uh, ancient and renaissance era cities that I did as part of intelligent speech. I'm going to have to talk to the uh, people who run intelligent speech about this, but I'm going to inform them that I removed my consent to have my segments available on the YouTube channel, etc. In terms of my back catalog, uh, I believe there are no direct crossovers, um, but uh, I have plugged him a number of times. To be honest, I have no idea how many times I have recommended his show, and I'm unsure if I have the editorial skills to go back and edit those references out of those episodes. Uh, podcast feeds can be very finicky. Even if I did edit them out, my general feeling here is that this show is intended as a living document. It's intended to be consumed from the first episode through whatever the present episode is. I think that the process of learning and growing with a host is part of what makes independent podcasts so impactful to those of us who listen to them. And, as painful as it is, the betrayal of our trust committed by Ryan Stitt will be more impactful and, and effective if the scope of that relationship is fully clear to future listeners. On the other hand, we can't make Ryan's show disappear, and so there's a real danger that listeners could be misdirected to his work by those earlier references. I think it's small, because my archive is smaller than his, so if you're already listening to my archive, you're probably going to finish first. But there is a danger there. As such, I'm going to endeavor over the next few months, as I have time, to go back through my past episodes. If I find a reference to Ryan, I'm going to change the episode's show notes to direct listeners to this episode for an explanation. I hope this is an acceptable compromise. Again, I'm, I'm open to further input. With that said, to any listeners, present or future, I want to say this unequivocally. I no longer endorse Ryan Stitt or his podcast. He has lost the right to our respect, either to himself or his work. If, in the future, he is able to fully reconcile with all of his victims, I might reconsider this stance. But that is between him and them, and for my part I consider them to be under no obligation to forgive him or his actions, which I consider to be an outrageous abuse of power, trust, and a betrayal of the entire podcasting community. I could not be more furious with Ryan, and I'm deeply sorry if my endorsement led anyone into a difficult situation with him. Okay. On to more pleasant topics. Uh, I'm going to save donors and patrons for next time. I have one plug to make, though. Um, let's hear it for continuing friendships, right? Uh, and in that vein, I would like to call everyone's mind back around to the Eastern Border podcast. If you're interested in modern history, Eastern Border is by friend of the show, Christophs Anderson, who is also the history podcast community's pet Latvian. His show is about the history of communism in Eastern Europe from the point of view of the people who experienced it. It's not a, top, uh, a narrative show. It's more of a, a topical hop-around kind of show. There's some really great nuggets in there. Uh, the current round of episodes about the Mir program is pretty fun, and the episodes he did on Chernobyl before it was cool were 
uh, worth listening to. Anyway, link in the show notes. With that, let's turn all of our attention back to the much more fun topic of the Agoraphobia Pod Podiversary Special. This one is long, as it consists of crossover between myself and the guys at Cannonball. Link in the show notes. In this episode, we discuss H.P. Lovecraft, a beloved author to me, and also a totally racist piece of garbage as a human being. I think this is a pretty good conversation on the topic, or as good a conversation as three white guys can have on the topic, but I have some comments to add as a result of recent developments in the Lovecraft universe after the segment, so please stay tuned for that. Oh, also, as with all of these agoraphobia segments, because I was doing something for outside the feed, I had slightly different editorial standards than I usually do here. I felt comfortable with more coarse language than usual, and we address more modern and controversial topics. I hope you enjoy the, the segment, but fair warning, if you don't like this segment, well, I'm going back to the normal stuff next time, so don't worry. Good evening. By pressing play, you've unlocked a door with the key of imagination. Beyond is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. Welcome to Agoraphobia, the Agora Podcast Network's spooktacular month of ghoulishly engaging content, celebrating the spirit of the Halloween season. So turn on all the lights, check all the closets and cupboards, look under the beds, and continue, if you dare. This week, it's double, double toil and trouble, as Daniel and Claude from the Cannonball combine with Ben Jacobs from the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast to concoct a troubling witch's brew concerning the works of H.P. Lovecraft, his contributions to horror writing, and his toxic personality that is sure to make your cauldron bubble. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of The Cannonball. It's a Cannonball Agoraphobia crossover event. Uh, this is a sort of special Halloween episode where we, meaning Daniel and I, are going to be talking to Ben Jacobs from Wittenberg to Westphalia about the works of his beloved author, and maybe Daniel's beloved author, maybe not um, my favorite author. Uh, <laughs> I would, I would say I, I'm, I'm beloved of the of the genre he is writing in, and so I have to respect the guy, and I enjoy some of his. Uh, uh, well, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to stop hemming and hawing. I do enjoy Lovecraft. I'm coming out and staking out the claim, but we'll discover why uh, that can be contentious or not contentious. I'm yeah, sorry. He, I'm, we're already. I've already just stepped in it. Yeah. <laughs> It's, well, it's difficult to talk about uh, authors who we admire to some capacity, but whose works, uh, I guess, are problematic in some sure. way. Um, I'm a little bit more on the problematic end. I think, Daniel, uh, you find some of it uh, a little bit more appealing. And, and Ben, you're, you're whole hog. Yeah. Well, that makes it sound like you're excusing some of this. No, that's not it. But, but you really are a, a, a fan of Lovecraft. Yeah. I, I really am a fan of Lovecraft. Despite his being a 
problematic person, yeah. uh, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, uh, problematic we'll... person, problematic author, problematic yeah. existence. <laughs> I guess it's all in there. But no, I, I just didn't want you to think that I'm picking on you uh, or, or picking on any Lovecraft fans like right from the start. Um, it's just this is kind of a fascinating moment because we have this author who uh, is a major horror author, but one who's... Uh, I guess works are extraordinarily contentious. And what's weird is he's probably, you know, a hundred years after his death or so, probably at the peak of his popularity, and yet, um, you know, probably at his most vulnerable. <laughs> well, I would say, yeah, yeah. kind of at the most, um, the most, and what's interesting though is he was always at a remove from the main, even the mainstream of racism of his day. Yeah. Uh, yes. So there's something like maybe that has some. Maybe that's the secret to his sticking power. It's like everyone knew he was this awful crank well, the entire... I don't know. It's real easy to slip right in here now into uh, talking about all this stuff. So let's, uh, maybe we should... Uh, no, that's true. That's true. Get, we're doing a show. Yeah, we started doing yeah. a show. Um, so I guess before we really jump out, though, um, let's see. Claude was going to give us uh, just a couple... For anyone who doesn't know Lovecraft or isn't super familiar with the actual stories that he wrote, they just know maybe through sort of pop cultural osmosis. Um, Claude's going to relate the uh, the plots of a couple of his most famous and sort of most essential stories. But before we got to that, uh, Ben... I want you to tell the Cannonball audience what uh, what you do over at uh, Wittenberg to Westphalia. Well, it has nothing to do with literature or horror writing or Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> um, my 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 show Wittenberg to Westphalia is about theoretically the wars of the Protestant Reformation, but I'm taking a really really deep dive into the causes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Uh, I've started basically with the fall of the Roman Empire, <laughs> and I'm working my way up. I've taken a break at the year 1000 to explore the social context of Europe in the Middle Ages, and I'm about through all the scene setting there, and I'm going to start to move on in the next couple episodes. Um, it's been it's been four years, and I'm still going strong. <laughs> That's fantastic, so, and, yeah, and uh, I, uh, yeah. I I will personally uh, attest to uh, very much enjoying uh, your approach to the material. Then, like, it's really, I guess when you when you did first start the show and you started off with just a basic grounding in European geography, I knew this would be my kind of show. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, we're really glad to have you on uh, talking talking Lovecraft, and I guess uh, uh, to to start us all off, Claude please all right so we're to to prevent us from being overly abstract which uh, is really a problem when when talking about an author or work or a time period we decided to focus on two particular stories call of cthulhu and shadow over Innsmouth. Uh, for my money they really sort of are the maybe not the quintessential Lovecraft, but they've got some of those quintessential elements that make Lovecraft Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. And I, I think Daniel can talk to talk about those in a little bit, but call of Cthulhu is sort of the, it's the mythos that gets spread throughout, you know, most of his works. And it, it's structurally a pretty weird piece. Uh, it, it begins with this narrator who inherits all of this material from his granduncle, who is a scholar at this local university. His grand granduncle uh, knows ancient languages 
and ancient history. And the way he talks about him, it's or the way he writes about this this character, it seems sort of close to philology. He's a philologist. Uh, the narrator finds this box with clippings and all kinds of material uh, about this cult of Cthulhu, and that's where we get into the narrative of this local sculptor who had come to his granduncle because he was having these hallucinatory visions of this place that did not operate according to Euclidean geometry. Um, he has these horrible nightmares and he starts sculpting what he sees from those nightmares and things get worse and worse and worse until they reach a point of no return. He gets uh, extraordinarily ill and feverish and that's the culmination of all of his nightmarish material. And then once the fever breaks, everything's fine. He has no access to this material anymore and he goes about his day. Um, in the box is also the the narrative of Inspector Lagrasse. So the granduncle talks about meeting this other scholar who had met this inspector in New Orleans who went to some, uh, I guess, archaeologist conference because he had broken up this, I guess, set of horrible rites out in the Everglades that were being practiced by a bunch of Creole people. That's going to be important. I'm going to come back to that. Uh, who were sacrificing people to some kind of winged monstrosity. And this was the statue that they were sacrificing people to. So nobody can quite identify it. Nobody quite knows what it is, but it has a correspondence to the, the sculpture that the, the original neurotic sculptor had brought to the professor in the first place. And then we move on to the narrative of a Scandinavian sailor who had been... <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's structurally... I find it structurally fascinating because it's sort of like these box narratives. This is something that I keep finding that Lovecraft comes back to. It's sort of like when we need information, we get some particular character who is the exposition or some yeah. weird kind of side narrative that does the exposition. So there's this narrative of the Scandinavian sailor who was out in the South Pacific with his crew, and then they got boarded by a group of pirates, uh, mixed-race pirates, I'll come back to that, uh, <laughs> who were... Um, practitioners of this Cthulhu cult. They have this horrible battle, but the white Scandinavian sailors, most likely due to genetic superiority, Lovecraft's idea is not mine, uh, manage to win the day. But they get stranded on this island that appears out of nowhere. Uh, the, the crew of sailors finds this gigantic structure on the island. They go into the structure. They find this giant... Uh, demon excrement monster floating at the bottom who somehow manages to rise up with a huge noxious gas and chase them out to sea uh, the sailors board the ship only two of them are left and instead of trying to get away from this giant excrement monster they go full speed up head right through it ram it disperse it and in this sort of sewage like moment it seems to pull itself back together and that's where uh, they somehow manage to make it back 
to some kind of quote-unquote civilization. And then the Scandinavian sailor is mysteriously killed when a box falls on him. Uh, the narrator <clears throat> realizes that all of this stuff signals that there is this cult of people who are trying to raise this dark god, Cthulhu, who has existed before, I guess, time existed. He's one of the dark ones, or the old ones, who live beyond space and time, who are sort of these primeval monsters that don't really care about humanity it's not that they're immoral they're just amoral and what the the worshipers of cthulhu want to do is call these old gods back to destroy all human kind i guess all of existence yeah yeah basically yeah. so there you go uh that's call of cthulhu all right so then we read shadow over insmith and Again, Shadow Over Innsmouth has this weird kind of narrative structure. It begins almost at the end with uh, the feds raiding the town of Innsmouth. Uh, this takes place in the 20s, and the general idea given out is that Innsmouth had been this hub of bootlegging, and what this essentially was was shutting down all of these, uh, I guess, booze factories or covert uh, alcohol activities and just demolishing everything. Um, we go from there to the narrator telling about how he managed to make contact with Innsmouth, and it was all innocent enough. He was on a vacation to do some archival research into his family bloodline. <clears throat> That's when he ended up in the backwoods of New England, and he gets about five to ten pages of exposition from this kindly local bus operator who tells him, uh, in true New England fashion, can't get there from here. <laughs> so he finds out you that... you got to go up to the tree where little Billy <laughs> broke his arm three years ago, and then you'll go yeah, down I mean, to the red house. It oh, really does... Down. <laughs> it really does get into that kind of uh, that kind of, I guess, depiction of place. Uh, but anyway, so he he finds out from this this bus operator that there is a bus that'll take him where he wants to go, but he has to stop the night in Innsmouth. And the the bus operator tells him all kinds of spooky hearsay about Innsmouth, and he decides on a lark. No, why not? Why not just go out there? Everyone in Innsmouth is cut off from civilization. They all have the same kind of features. There's, quote-unquote, an Innsmouth look. And they look vaguely fish-like. Uh, when he gets to Innsmouth, he realizes that it's kind of dead. There's no one there. There's nothing around. Everything is sort of, like, burnt out and eerie and creepy. He finds uh, a local kid who... Well, he's not a local. He's a kid from a couple towns over, but he works in the grocery store uh, just because he needs the money and he tells him that if he wants to know anything about Innsmouth then he should find the town drunk so the narrator goes and finds the town drunk gets him boozed up and then we get another 20 pages of backstory and exposition about how the the sort of founding father of the town was this captain who had gone out to the south pacific it's always the south pacific <laughs> yeah, anyway uh he goes out to the south pacific and gets involved in these 
fish demon worship rites uh, from this cult that exists on an island out there somewhere. He brings one of the local girls back and marries her, and that's the beginning of this whole development of a fish people, fish demon cult in Innsmouth. Uh, they slowly sort of cut themselves off from civilization and start interbreeding with each other to create this half-human, half-fish hybrid demon existence. And everybody at a certain age begins to get the Innsmouth look. They become more fish than human. And then they go off to sea and dive underwater and live forever as fish demons. So the narrator, <clears throat> he doesn't know what to think because this is the town drunk talking. But when he gets back to the local inn, uh, he starts to get more and more creeped out because there are people in the room next door who appear to be trying to break in and their language is some kind of fishy guttural slobber. Uh, he gets out of the inn and starts running throughout the town and he's being chased by a whole horde of fish people. He hides out from the fish people, uh, makes his way back to the uh, couple towns over, and that's when the narrator calls the feds. So the fed raid from the beginning was actually instigated by the narrator himself. Wow, he withheld that piece of information. All right, so can, can I just uh, say that this protagonist <laughs> deserves the horror story award for being a logical, sane human being? You know, <laughs> right up until the end, when which you know, Claude hasn't gotten to yet. But it's well, just like you you read this and you just go, "Why doesn't everybody in every horror movie do that?" Thank you. People well, are trying it's... to break into your room in the creepy house. Don't like arm yourself. Get out the window. Yeah. <laughs> so he does a little, he, he ends up doing some more genealogical research and finds he's related to the Marsh family, which were the, the original people who brought the fish people back. He finds himself dreaming of underwater kingdoms and finding that he's growing gills in his neck. Uh, soon he discovers to his horror that he is one of the fish people. He's to be one of the crown princes of the fish people. And uh, that's when he devolves into madness. Yes. So that's it. All right. The the thing that both of these have in contact, uh, in in common really is this weird narrative structure. I mean, they're genre wise. I know Daniel's going to talk about the the context for the weird, mm -hmm. but genre wise, these are both kinds of detective fiction. Uh, playing on, on the tropes of detection, but also playing on that trope in detective fiction of the, the, the protagonist somehow also being the perpetrator of the crime. Mm, yeah. Uh, involved in some way, involved in some capacity. The narrator in Call of Cthulhu is involved to the capacity that just knowing about the cult is one step closer to getting the cult to destroy you or getting the cult to get what it wants. Mm -hmm. And in Shadow Over Innsmouth, the narrator finds that he himself is the monster. So, it, it, I mean, you can take that back to Oedipus. The detective <laughs> is looking for himself. Yeah. No, I mean, seriously, Oed Oedipus is the, the... I think Ross MacDonald did an essay on it. Oedipus is kind of like the foundation of detective fiction yeah so both of them share that aspect and there's some of that structural weirdness I, I i don't know if this was klutzy writing or if lovecraft was trying to do something with the genre but there always is this kind of all right i must find some kind of source who just 
takes over the narration <laughs> and spills everything. Uh, it, it's kind of this fascinating way of doing it. Mm-hmm. These stories within stories within stories. Uh, you know, I think Borges would have made more out of that, but <laughs> it, yeah, it yeah. is kind of interesting to see uh, Lovecraft doing that. So I, I would, I just want to interrupt real quick and just say that you, you just said a piece of what makes Lovecraft one of my favorites. It is, I don't know whether he did it on purpose or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well that, there yeah. are parts that I know he did on purpose. Right. But, and those are probably the worst parts. Maybe. But um, But we'll, we'll get to that. We'll yeah. get to that. Yeah. But, but that, I, that's always the question with Lovecraft. Is yeah. <laughs> how much do you do on purpose? Because some of this is ridiculously inept and makes no sense. Yeah. And sort yeah. of seems like he backfilled it in. But then some of it, yeah, is picking from... You know, classical literature with metatextual, you know, uh, meta narratives, framing devices, and then some of it's picking from detective fiction, and then some of it's just, uh, and then I'll do a flashback to my childhood, I guess. Right. So yeah, it's flashbacks within flashbacks and all kinds of weird stuff. All right. So Daniel, mm-hmm. would all right. Lovecraft is often positioned as being a weird writer. Yeah. I mean, what does that mean? Right. So typically you see Lovecraft either classified as horror or as what's called weird fiction. And unless you are, honestly, unless you're pretty deep in the weeds with, uh, I guess, what we might call the uh, the, the fantastical literatures, um, you're probably not have going to heard the term weird fiction, but it is, it's, it's a genre. It's a sort of a term of art for a genre. And it's a bit of a back formation. I'm not entirely sure that anyone during the heyday of weird fiction thought of themselves as being a weird fiction writer. Um, I really feel it's more of a back formation, but this heyday was in the 1920s and thirties. And this was a style of short story that was published typically in the low quality pulp magazines, which were huge at the time. This was really, uh, this was a time in American fiction, at least, where what we might call genre fiction was very much relegated to this kind of, uh, the gutter of the, of the pulp magazine. This would have been like a weekly or, well, usually monthly, um, cheap, printed on cheap paper, which is why it's called pulp, and generally considered disposable. And so the, in a, in a way, almost the, uh, the fact that scholarship has even emerged around a lot of these genres and a lot of these writers is itself a kind of almost like found art. I don't know. Um, but anyway, well, I guess there's Dickensian uh, antecedent for the kind of just the hack writer churning out stuff and it actually getting a lot of critical attention. But in, this, in specific, we're talking specifically about, um, this is a genre that emerged almost entirely out of one publication called Weird Tales. So, mm. so this was a uh, this was a pulp magazine called Weird Tales. It began publication in 1924 um, out of Chicago uh, in a publishing house called Rural Publications. So, if anybody wants to get uh, <laughs> wants to get their third coast neurosis on, there you go. Um, but and it was itself uh, it was publishing stories. This was in the 20s and 30s. This was a time when what we might call the genre boundaries were not very. It was a very fluid time. Uh, mm-hmm. So this was really. This is also around the same time that Hugo Gernsback started up his um, uh, astounding stories. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, not astounding, okay. not astounding, amazing stories. I'm sorry, <clears throat> astounding would come later. That's Joseph W. Campbell, and that's the foundation of hard science fiction. But we won't get into that. Um, so, <laughs> sorry, guys. I, just, I love this shit. Um, so, uh, but this was a very. This was a time when the kind of there was a, there was an appetite for like fantastical literature. 
but it wasn't really all that firmly in place, like what was fair game for what genre or what have you. So Weird Tales was uh, this magazine that published what we would today would call things like uh, space opera. Um, just like, you know, grand, uh, grand scale, planet hopping, science fiction romance, pioneered by an Edmund Hamilton. And he was one of the most published authors. This also published, and I thought this was, uh, this was pretty great, their most, by far, by far the most, the biggest star that Weird Tales had who published regularly was a guy named Seabury Quinn. And he mm-hmm. did these stories. Um, it was an inspector, Jules de Grandin, occult detective. Basically, basically, <laughs> this was, it was like X-Files 1932. It's just, it's phenomenal to like, just read the synopses of these things. Uh, honestly, like, Seabury Quinn is, like, for such a pillar of the Weird Tales magazine, which is itself such a legend, he's really fallen out of favor. Nobody really reads him anymore. Nobody really cares about him anymore. His sort of second bananas are the guys that we talk about, guys like Lovecraft, guys like Robert E. Howard mm-hmm. of the Conan the Barbarian stories, guys like Clark Ashton Smith, who is, for my money, the uh, I think the vastly superior practitioner of weird fiction um, to compared to Lovecraft. Uh, but... Um, so, but yeah, Seabury Quinn was by far their. He's the guy who made like paid the bills around there, um, writing stories about like this occult detective who finds out that the murders were committed by a werewolf or a vampire, you know that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, but anyway, so but all these stories had in common their kind of antecedents in earlier forms of uh, fantastical literature, like you know we're all familiar with like Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, and that was this genre called scientific romance. It's not quite science fiction as we know it, and it had fallen out of favor by the teens and 20s even though uh, i guess Vern, i don't think Vern was publishing anymore but wells was still publishing at the time but his his great classics like uh, the invisible man and uh war of the worlds um those were from kind of the late 19th century by this time uh you saw a kind of an upswing in uh what were called lost race stories and the lost race story mm-hmm. is basically like any, anytime you've like read a story about uh, an underground civilization that threatens humankind, that's a lost race story. Or they can also be um, they can also be situated in remote places on the planet Earth. So you might have uh, well, honestly like Gorilla City in the DC Comics universe is basically a lost race story. Um, it's a story well, yeah. where there's there's a powerful civilization hidden away somewhere that can threaten the rest of us. I mean, it's worth saying that the entire early comic book genre was basically just lifting stories out of the pulp. Oh, universe. totally, totally. Um, just like so, the entire comic book genre as we understand it is is basically based on pulp novel stories recycled. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and another big well that uh, the, the the writers of Weird Tales would draw on was the the Theosophy movement. Um, and this was a kind of a movement in occultism and spiritualism in the late 19th century and early 20th century. It really gained a lot of ground. There were theosophy societies in every major city and most minor cities uh, all across uh, America and uh, Europe and even in India, um, which well, honestly they were kind of cribbing half-baked Hinduism for most for a lot of their stuff, but they still opened up schools in India. Um, yeah. But but I think one of the key elements that fed into the weird fiction genre in Lovecraft especially that was present in Theosophy was the idea that humankind has a very, very deep history, not an evolutionary deep history as we understand it, but a deep history of forgotten knowledge and forgotten civilizations and preceding civilizations that were superior in some ways and very different, and that this history was accessible through occultism. Um, that was a huge, right. huge influence on a lot of these stories as well. And of course, there's just the pulps in general. You know, these were che- these were cheap. These were meant to be turned out. These were, you know, your editor would be slamming on the desk saying, like, you know, I don't care if it's if it's art. Just give me, you know, 5,000 words by Thursday. 
so there was a great deal, and I think honestly this feeds into some of the structural elements that Claude was talking about. Yeah. That I think when Lovecraft is doing it unintentionally, I think he's writing to a, to a deadline, or he's like he's writing yeah. to basically he's writing to churn it out, and like how can I get this idea that's in my head out? Oh, I know, I'll have the town drunk explain it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah. So uh, well, it's also. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. It's also really fascinating because there, there's a lot of of Lovecraft that taps into the same kinds of social anxieties that the modernists were, were responding to. Mm-hmm. Now he is definitively anti-modern. Yeah, uh, that's that's sort of going throughout. But there, there's this weird kind of aspect of the modernists that could often be extraordinarily revanchist. I mean, the the most well known, I guess, would be Ezra Pound and yeah, yeah. the sort of fascist wing of modernism. But even well, T. S. Eliot was a sort of staunch conservative through, I guess, the midpoint of. Well, pretty early in his career and all the way throughout. Um, Lovecraft is is often with the cosmic horror tapping into those same kind of social anxieties. The the modern era or, or the early 20th century was one where there was rapid, unprecedented technological, social, political, economic, you name it, change. Mm-hmm. And there was this constant sense of being... Um, separated from the past or separated from any kind of foundation that could guide you into understanding the moment. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sort of correspondent with this constant anxiety he has about the the meaninglessness of existence. Mm-hmm. The cosmological horror is basically one of um, sort of pessimistic nihilism. Yeah. I, th- right? I think you're hitting on something uh, to, sorry to, to interrupt Claude, but like that, I think you're hitting on kind of a germ of a lot of these and the fact that a lot of these genres were not well defined at the time is because they're all emerging out of this sort of modernist anxiety. And yeah. I think in the in, yeah. in the science fiction route that eventually emerges, it's a, an attempt to master modernism. And it's 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 yeah. And in fantasy, it's a reaction to sort of reject it or pretend that it's not there, perhaps, or at least to try to yeah. recover values that are not possible. And with the Lovecraft well, thing, with the a... weird fiction vein, or at least the Lovecraftian weird fiction vein, it's. It's utter nihilism in the face of it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it, well, it's like um, he does read modernism as a version of decadence. Mm-hmm. Like when uh, the sculptor is producing artworks to try to capture this primeval chaos, they the, the description he has sounds like you know Picasso. Yeah, yeah, more or less. So it's it's reactive to that. And I, I think you're absolutely right that when faced with that, it's okay, shut down the end, nothing, we have degenerated. We'll get into his racial politics mm-hmm. in a bit, but this very idea of the degeneration of humanity and the end of humanity is very much connected to that pessimism, but also connected to his racial politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think... Like, I can't, and, you can't well, not see it. And I think... Well, but, oh, sorry, go ahead, Ben. That's maybe a conversation for later. I, <laughs> okay. Well, I was, was going to say, I, I think like uh, I, I think what might help us sort of approach all of this is learning, well, where... How did H.P. Lovecraft himself come to be writing these stories? Yes. Who is okay. this guy? Yeah, and that's... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, so I'll, I'll handle... so. The, the idea that was just said that I think is really important, that there was a ton of change happening mm-hmm. 
I, I'm going to start there. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft was born in 1890, um, and that's pretty important because the 18, nine, in 1893, basically, 1890, 1893, that's when it was declared, for what it's worth, that the American frontier was closed. That didn't really matter to Lovecraft. He's from New England. He's born in Providence, which mm -hmm. is where I live now. But that sort of gets... That helps us set sort of the frame of what's going on in the United States at that time. A huge amount of change. America's going from being this agrarian uh, frontier society that economy is geared towards developing the frontier to being a consumer-oriented society the way it is now. Uh, and the uh, entrepots of the East Coast are serving that need. So that, that's an important bit of background. Uh, Providence itself is a city that I like to tell people it never recover, never really recovered from the war, by which I mean the Civil War. Um, it was, uh, at one time, an extremely wealthy city, uh, but it, its biggest peak uh, relative to the other cities was in arms manufacturing for the Civil War, and then after that, it, it still was a powerful and important center, but it was just dwarfed by its neighbors, uh, and never, re always sort of was just kind of hanging on uh, after that. So, um, when Lovecraft himself was born, uh, that's sort of the setting he's born into, this New England setting of economic mediocrity, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, Providence is a very old town. Uh, I, Lovecraft's family was a very old family, but they weren't one of the wealthy ones. Uh, his father was a traveling salesman, and his uh, grandfather, his maternal grandfather, was also a traveling salesman. Uh, so the men in his life were absent, particularly so because his father ended up coming down with syphilis, uh, which uh, syphilis, if left untreated, drives you insane. So uh, be safe, kids. Uh, and he ended up having a nervous breakdown when Lovecraft was three and getting sent to a mental asylum. Uh, where he lingered for several years before dying. Hmm. Uh, of course, Lovecraft wasn't told as a kid that his father had syphilis, uh, and if he was ever told, he never uh, he never told anyone else. Yeah. Uh, he, he would tell people that his father died of a nervous breakdown caused by overwork. Okay. Huh. Um, so, 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 yeah, the cover story <laughs> was uh, just uh, marinated in Calvinist uh, work ideology. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, so that left him growing up with uh, his mother, her three sisters, uh, I'm sorry, his mother, her two sisters, his grandmother, and then his only real male role model as a child was his maternal grandfather, who then is a traveling salesman. So mostly he's only interacting with this guy via correspondence, via letters, which is important. Uh, that's his formative relationship. Uh, he was very sickly, um, and mostly lived getting doted on by these women uh, hand and foot and then uh, and then occasionally his grandfather would come in to do things like cure him of being afraid of the dark by forcing him to walk repeatedly through dark rooms so <laughs> wow. not quite child abuse yeah. but very Calvinist New England <laughs> um, so the, the family suffered from a gradually worsening financial situation um which then created more issues for him. Uh, he he did went to a prestigious high school uh, and had a group of friends who he w he enjoyed spending time with, 
but you know he his family was having financial issues he probably had health issues there was stress involved he eventually had a nervous breakdown in his last year of high school so he never really got his high school diploma directly he eventually there's some confusion as to whether he eventually got one in any case he never actually went on to college um which would of course be a problem for him in terms of his further career he also had of course no practical skills because you <laughs> right. know yeah uh so um but he did he was very well educated like he he consumed vast amounts of books but he was an autodictat um he would go through the libraries around here in providence which are completely wonderful um the the Protest- the um the providence athenaeum still exists uh you can get weddings there it's Maybe. beautiful absolutely yeah. beautiful building yeah um, and he would just hang out there all the time. He had a, you know, group of friends that he would hang out with there, sort of. Uh, he became an amateur journalist and actually, in that capacity, wrote polemics against people who would write for lowbrow publications for money, which is <laughs> ironic. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. His, his whole life is uh, one giant cell phone, in a way. It, it yeah he, he's got this huge self-hate thing going yeah on. like he loves being around people but it clearly drains him and then he'll self-isolate and then need people and it's um well i'll get to that um his as he was sort of moving out into this amateur journalist world and starting to get some acclaim and, and meeting people and really be building a name for himself his mother had a nervous breakdown and was committed to a hospital uh, the same mental hospital where his father had been sent, uh, in which place she got some gallbladder surgery that went wrong and she died. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the fact that his father died of syphilis does raise the question about his mother having mental issues and dying in a mental hospital. But let's move on. Um, so, anyway, that, that is reportedly what happened. The fact is, though, that both of his parents died lingering deaths in Butler Mental Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah. um, In his living memory. Uh, In his mother's case, anyway. In his memory. Um, So, at one of these amateur journalist conventions, he met Sonia Green, uh, and they got married. uh, Apparently, a very healthy relationship. Um, His uh, aunts objected to the relationship, but... Uh, in a sort of active defiance, he got married to her. Uh, particularly, this was defiant because she was a Jewish woman, uh, and he mm. had written several. This is interest, an interesting point because he'd written numerous polemics against the Jews. Yeah, uh, as a journalist, um, and some of his uh, fiction that he wrote as a kid made unkind comments about the Jews. Um, just cards on the table. I'm Jewish. Yeah. So, okay. Um, <laughs> so I, I think that's why well, I think that's one uh, one of many reasons why your your perspective as a Lovecraft fan I think is really fascinating. Then just like yeah yeah. Anyway, okay. sorry that perspective that you bring to it. But anyway, continue. Sure. Um, so he, he got married to her, and she, you know, maybe it was because the aunts, which was his entire family, objected to her. Uh, but her her account of it is that. Uh, she thought that he was being held back by his family, um, 
and she wanted to move to New York, which they did. Uh, and she said she said she was totally fine supporting him financially because she believed in him as a writer. She was totally supportive of him. Um, she had a business, and they were going to move to New York. He was going to move into the literary scene in New York, where he would move past his provincial Providence background and actually like move out into the world, get past his background, and you know flourish. Unfortunately, financial issues sort of intervene again here, because almost as soon as they moved to New York, her business failed. Hmm. She, she was able to keep it going for a year or two, and then it failed. There were national financial problems um, as well at the time. Um, this whole period, sort of 1885 to 19... well, to 1945, to 1950, is just repeated booms and busts in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Punctuated by wars. And so that's very much the, the context that we're in. Uh, things for Lovecraft to look okay and then the economy will flip up and it'll be that much worse on the socioeconomic scale. So one of these things happen, she loses her business, she can't support him or them anymore. She gets a job opportunity out in Cincinnati. He gets a job opportunity in Chicago to be the editor at Weird Tales. Yeah, yeah. He he turns it down. She accepts the job in Cincinnati. So she moves to Cincinnati, and she's sending money back to him. Uh, and so he's moving... And the, part of the reason he didn't move to Chicago is he's in New York, in Manhattan. He's living this really exciting life. He's uh, moving in these really exciting bohemian literary circles full of some big names that I don't remember. Um, <laughs> but a number of them were Jewish, and none of them were homosexuals, although he probably didn't know about that. Uh, right. Because the vaguest mention of sex would set him sweating. Um, <laughs> and so uh, she moves to Cincinnati, but eventually they're, they're you know, the, the situation keeps getting worse. He's making, like, no money. Uh, so he has to move to Red Hook in Brooklyn, which is a very working class part of Brooklyn, mm-hmm. uh, a part of you know New York um, at the time, uh, full of uh, you know that's where all the bootlegging was happening, uh, all the organized crime. It's full of dock workers. It's probably very exciting, but it's also full of crime. And eventually, the apartment is robbed. He loses everything. Uh, he hangs on for like a couple more months, and then basically heads back to Providence where you know, they have at this point lived apart for a couple of years he divorces Sonia uh, but he, he tells her that he's agreed to the divorce but he never actually f- signs the papers which she doesn't <laughs> find out about until she tries to get remarried yeah yeah. <laughs> um, so he spends another 10 years living in Providence um, living off basically whatever he could get from writing and a tragically dwindling inheritance uh basically he survives by not spending money you know um lives this extremely frugal existence basically only uh he gets his entertainment by going to the athenaeum um and he eventually contracted colon cancer and suffered this very long slow lingering death um a couple things to to just highlight here um because I, I didn't quite get it to it in the narrative. Mm-hmm. His biggest... He had a couple times in his life where he had real strong social networks. 
but they were they're sort of these brief periods apparently in high school and then when he was for a couple of years when he was living in Manhattan he ser- seems to have sort of lost all of it when he went to Brooklyn because um, he was embarrassed by his financial situation and stressed out and and stuff but he maintained this really really lively correspondence to the point that uh, cataloging and maintaining his volume like there's 3,000 volumes of his letters something like wow like, like there's a whole yeah academic discipline just to organizing, collating, and scanning these things. Um, and uh, so he clearly appreciated the you know contact with his fellow human beings, but he never really had periods where he really did it energetically for a very long time. Yeah. It, it clearly drained him. Um, he clearly had some sort of depression, I think. Um, it's hard to really diagnose someone or, you know, call it a social anxiety kind of thing or something. Uh, I don't want to armchair diagnose the guy. Uh, it's not useful for anybody, but he had, he had some sort of chronic illness mm-hmm. of the mental variety, probably that was keeping him from interacting with people, uh, long-term, but he clearly enjoyed it. He mostly got it through correspondence. Um, and then the one thing that I started out with that I, I should have mentioned more then. So, right, his main male role model was his grandfather, who was 70 when he died. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- we're talking in the 18, you know, 1890s to his father died when, his grandfather died when Lovecraft was like 10-ish, I, I think. So this is the main formative influence on Lovecraft. He, you know, started reading and writing when he was three and mostly interacted through his grandfather through letters and stu- and books and stuff. So his main formative influence was a 70-year-old man in the 1890s. Lovecraft <laughs> writes <laughs> and has the opinions of a person who came of age intellectually in 1840. Yeah, yeah. That is I'm going to just suggest that and put that on the table. So hmm. all right. <laughs> so Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I mean it's you know it's weird because yeah, that's true. And at the same time, he's, I mean, he's also clearly responding to other things that are operant in the culture, you know? So, like, you know, I just don't want to dismiss his white supremacist uh, outlook. And it it is white supremacist. That's exactly what it is. I don't want to dismiss that as being sort of a holdover necessarily from one personal relationship because it did correspond to a whole discourse that was happening in the culture. Sure. I mean, you know... um, I I would say... Well, this is another thing that we we probably want to come back to, but... Well, it's... You know, Birth of a Nation brought back the whole idea of... I guess winning the South over it brought back the clan. It literally brought back yeah. the clan. Yeah. Well, this was that's that's the same time period in which uh, Lovecraft is writing. Yeah. That's the 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 same moment. Mm-hmm. These are the the ideas that were in the air as well. So True. you know, yeah, I, I'm not trying to dismiss what you just said, but I'm also like, I'm curious why that he... moment would allow for that stuff to come back there's some other he he was reacting to a lot of stuff in the culture he also comes off and this is somewhat splitting hairs but um like i don't care what kind of bigot he was he was clearly a bigot yeah um 
but he comes off if you when you read in detail as more of an elitist bigot than necessarily a genie gene, gene genetic based bigot sure. because he uh, changes his opinions when he gets in contact with people yeah there's but it's it, in the work it's white supremacist yeah yeah i mean uh, in the work it is white supremacist totally it's it's Okay, but the that's... the horrors the 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 horrors in Call of Cthulhu uh, do not come from indigenous races or or ethnicities. The horrors come from the mixing of races. Right. Everyone involved in the Cthulhu cult is mixed race, and he draws attention to that. That's one of the things that I'm saying is uh, that's intentional. Yeah. That, I mean, I that's not true. accidental. That is absolutely intentional, and the the horror aspects of his writing. Is di- are directly connected to this white supremacist view? Yeah. I, so, whatever his personal his personal opinions were, in the work itself, it's it's clearly white supremacist. I'll say that yeah. I agree. Uh, I will just say that for him, he would have these opinions and then he'd walk them back as he gained experience with other people. <laughs> so yeah, you know he. he he was an anti-Semite till he met his wife, and then he excused it to people by saying she was well assimilated, which right. is right. right. So it still, it still works in that but, like that kind of like wasp supremacist uh, uh, framework there. But I, but I take your I take your meaning, Ben. Like it's a like a kind of um, uh, well, you know, he, he's he's a poster, right? He's an internet poster, and he's he's exactly. he's, he's throwing hard on the forums. But then when you actually see him in person, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's like, oh, well, you know, like, I guess they're not a mud person, you know. Yeah, um, like, and, when he gets outside his, his comfort zone and he meets people and has to treat them like human beings, all of a sudden he realizes that, well, yeah, actually they are human beings. And it's, but, and, and I think and, what's, and what's interesting, ex- oh, but I think what's interesting is that his, his, you know, he'll always revert to that kind of deep set, you know, however it was inculcated. And it comes out in his art yeah. that deep set sense of unease with this mixing with different peoples. And I, I th- another thing, like Claude mentioned, uh, you know, Birth of a Nation and the resurgence of the Klan. This was also uh, the time of basically the invention of illegal immigration as we know it, uh, yeah, yeah, based yeah. in scientific assessment, pseudo scientific assessment. Uh, this was the time yes. of the the uh, Immigration Acts of 1924 that began the quota system. Where there would be, right. you could only let in a certain amount of people a year, and the, the Congress like drew up the law. Actually, has like a table of allowing this number of people from these countries and areas that specifically maps to the pseudoscientific, you know, skull caliper uh, race science yeah. of the time. Philology, right, 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 yeah. and that kind of which adds a kind of like you know there was there was a this, this was a moment. This was also the moment of the eugenics movement. There was this this moment yes, of. Yeah. Um, this uh, concern, this deep set concern about um, where you know where does where does human flourishing come from, and these people are so glommed onto bol- bolting on the their inherited racism onto this you know pseudo scientific approach. Well, well, that's it, what it seems to be to be always operating is that there's this kind of Spenglerian decline of the West pessimism in Lovecraft mm-hmm. that he wants to link to this kind of despair at the nothingness of the universe. I mean, this is also the moment where uh, physics is pushing beyond 
the immediately observable and getting into the fantastic and strange itself right, so yeah. that you can't even wrap your mind around how the universe operates. I mean, the, yeah. the, the Einsteinian universe is, is chaotic. It's, and specifically um, called out by him as chaotic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, I mean, he wants to link, he wants to link these things to this kind of scientific discourse, but when it comes down to the actual horror, um, it, it, it always is the degeneracy of the white race. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, again and again and again, Shadow Over Innsmouth strikes me as a, a kind of parable about what happens when you, I guess, have children with someone who is racially other. <laughs> and it, like, that is like, again and again, I can't look at this stuff and not see that. Well, I think it's uh, a persistent aspect of his writing. Yeah. There's, there's, there's one story in particular, and I, I cannot remember the exact title of it. Um, but it, it, Claude, I was reminded when you talked about the, that sort of tradition in detective genre writing, where it turns out that the, the detective is somehow instrumental in, in the crime itself. Uh, where right. there was one particular story, and and Ben Ben would probably know actually, but the the, the big reveal, the big horrible reveal uh, for this man who's researching his family history, and he's also sort of observing the stuffed ape collection that his explorer grandfather or father has assembled or whatever, or some kind of relative. Anyway, it, it turns out that he himself is the product of interspecies copulation <laughs> between right, apes yeah, and right. men. And that's like a, the horror that drives him insane and stuff. And and that's, but yeah, I think that ties that's, that ties into a neat little bow. These two trends of like the detective who was yeah. himself part of the crime and also this this uh, white racial panic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's okay. So why does all right, Daniel? I'm going to throw this back to you yeah. though. Why has Lovecraft taken off? Like, what has been the posthumous career? Right. Uh, why is this why anti-Semitic he... racist? Freak <laughs> yeah, how how did this? Who how basically this... died in poverty, unloved and, by anyone? Yeah, how do yeah, how, like, how the heck what? do we know who this guy's name is? Um, well, it comes back to one of his weird tales colleagues, basically. Like, I mean, it really does go back to one guy, a guy named August Derleth, who had been actually called out in a couple of uh, Lovecraft stories as uh, I believe like Comte de Lett or something like there's a there's a sort of incidental character whose name is a kind of joke on August's you know August Derleth's name. So, but August Derleth was again one of these kind of one of the tent poles of Weird Tales. He published a lot of stuff in Weird Tales, um, and but he was also an, an admirer of Lovecraft and a frequent correspondent. This was kind of he was part of a circle of correspondence with uh, these guys like. Uh, well, I mentioned Robert E. Howard of Conan the Barbarian fame and Clark Ashton Smith. Um, they corresponded a lot with one another. They shared a lot of ideas. They called each other out in their stories and stuff. And August Derleth was kind of part of that circle. So when H.P. Lovecraft died, uh, August ended up with a number of his, or at least he claimed to end up with a number yeah. of his papers uh, and kind of his papers and notes, his outlines for stories. And so for the first few years after Lovecraft died, August Derleth would publish stories that he had written based off those purported notes and credit them to August Derleth and H.P. Lovecraft. And this was apparently like really frowned upon at the time. And I, I didn't really dig too much into the controversy, but people basically assumed like August Derleth was passing off his own work under the name of the more, at the time, the more famous H.P. Lovecraft, uh, or at least the more respected, like would get you published in, in the reconstituted Weird Tales because it actually... The Weird Tales of the 1950s was a different magazine that basically had been rebooted. Um, 
But it did lead to some kind of, and Alvester Leff had his own sort of boss success, and he would write. Um, I think one of the interesting aspects of Lovecraft's career and a lot of these guys is that there was the the Cthulhu mythos, as we mentioned. It was a shared, what we call today a shared universe. But that is a, a setting with characters and, and elements that writers, different writers would employ, and so as which implying a kind of a kind of continuity among their different stories. Um, and uh, but August Leth was kind of the he was the guy who kind of catalyzed all that. He really, if there is anything close to a kind of canon of Cthulhuism, August Leth is the guy who made it gel together. Um, and he continued publishing. He actually founded his own publishing house called Arkham House uh, that would continue to publish and republish H.P. Lovecraft stories and some of the other weird, weird tales guys. And interestingly, I thought this was very interesting about August Durlap, um Arkham House also published a lot of really groundbreaking, envelope-pushing feminist science fiction. Uh, he was actually publishing, um, I think most famously, Joanna Russ, who uh, would um, end up publishing the Hugo Award-winning The Female Man, which is a really, just a stunning work of 1970s um, sort of new wave feminist science fiction that is a good example of how the doors were blown off of the whole Golden Age uh, uh, attitude by that time. Um, uh, but that's kind, of the, that's kind of the germ of how the sort of the torch of Lovecraft was kept born aloft. Um, so through the 70s, Lovecraft's reputation was kind of on the rise he would appear in um he would appear in uh, anthologies more he would his you know reprinted stories would would sell on the kind of the news racks with all the rest of the you know the uh, the science fiction paperback crap which i dearly love and have a vast collection of myself um but uh i think probably what i think really here's here's my thesis and ben you can push back on this i feel like the reason why lovecraft has survived and thrived and found as much what we might call viral success to this day is because he became implanted in the incipient nerd culture of role-playing games in the early 1980s. No, I think that's about, I think that's fairly accurate. Okay. And I thought this was interesting because I was doing a little bit of research because there, there was, so we all know Dungeons and Dragons and that was kind of the, the granddaddy of them all. Um, and Dungeons and Dragons itself is a kind of, you, you might think of it as a, as a way to create, you know, sort of, uh, you know, Tolkien Xeroxed 50,000 times kinds of narratives with your friends <laughs> sitting around the table. Um, but that also, I mean, it kicked off this trend of people coming up with rules to be able to, you and your friends could act out pastiches of an author's style with each other. You could create a collaborative fan fiction, basically. Uh, and Lovecraft's work got picked up in this all this, and with the publication of Call of Cthulhu, the role-playing game beginning in 1981. Since then, it is still ongoing. It is an ongoing game system. It has run through a ton of editions, as you might expect for a what 30 odd, uh, well, what you know, 37 year old you know game property. Um, but uh, so I think by placing by Lovecraft's mythos becoming part of that burgeoning role-playing game. Uh, community which perpetuated itself in the kind of the comic book stores and the game stores and the early internet of its day which became one of the kernels of what we today call nerd culture which has become the I would argue the absolute dominant popular culture on the planet right now 
Um, yeah, which, which is extremely odd, having lived through, having, yeah. <laughs> having been a young nerd in the 90s. When do you, do you, What's amazing is I will tell people, there was a time when you couldn't buy Star Wars toys if you wanted to. They were, they were, they were nowhere. The people don't believe me. Anyway, um, but I think another, another uh, sort of uh, contributing element to the, the, the survival of Lovecraft as, as, a, as, an, as a person that touched them um, belongs to the film Reanimator by Stuart Gordon, directed by Stuart Gordon, released in 1985. Um, and this was a huge cult horror hit. And I think that helped keep Lovecraft in the realm of sort of what we would think of as horror, even though his, the stories themselves and his weird fiction touch on what we today consider science fiction elements or fantasy elements. Um, so Reanimator, if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's gross. Um, it's a fun horror movie. Um, but it was based on a Lovecraft story simply because the, as I understand the, the legend, the director student Gordon was tired of all the vampire movies and wanted to make a Frankenstein movie. But you couldn't really make a Frankenstein movie because everyone was tired of Frankenstein movies because everyone makes a Frankenstein movie. So he found some other kind of reanimated corpse story, which was one of Lovecraft's sort of better known stories, uh, Herbert West Reanimator. Um, so I think the, I think the dual uh, lodging of Lovecraftism or sort of the Lovecraft style in the in, in the kind of germ of what became nerd culture which really took off in the 2000s with the internet um, I think the credit belongs to the Call of Cthulhu RPG and the reanimator uh, uh, film which sort of lodged itself in those the horror fan consciousness and what's fascinating to me anyway is that Stuart Gordon in order to read the story it was out of print he had to go to the to the Chicago library archives like the Chicago stacks to yeah. find a copy of the story to read, so I think that's I think that's why it deserves some credit for keeping the keeping the flame alive here. But that's I think that's kind of a rough and ready um, history of how the flickering torch of a, an extremely racist weirdo from the twenties was kept alive this whole time. But this compelling it was what was compelling to a lot of people for various reasons that I think Ben can speak to uh, coming up here. Well, uh, but like yeah. it's it's but that's how that's how the flame was kept alive. But what led this efflorescence like what when we talk about lovecraft today when we talk about what we like about him what are we talking about <laughs> so we, i'm gonna jump in and you know i want to fill in a couple things there oh please um, yeah n- not in terms of lovecraft himself but in terms of the wider um culture i think you did a great job in nailing down the pulp culture side of the the transmission chain mm-hmm. uh and then on the modern side, you know, the Call of Cthulhu game, definitely. Leading into what I want to talk about, there was this rise of cult movies, uh, B-movies, um, and things that sort of... Um, proper, intellectual properties that consciously, or their, that their fans enjoyed because they rejected the idea of high art. Sure, yeah. And so, you know, you can think of uh, Ed Wood, Devo, you know, uh, Cher, to a certain extent, you know, (laughs) Kung Fu movies. Yeah. Um, And there's a, a, you know, discussion around this, and I don't know how much it's been fleshed out uh, in a, you know in academic circles or anything, because I'm, I'm not 
in any way. Well, I think uh, <laughs> I think honestly, like Claude, in in, in your your study of canonicity, I think this touches very very closely upon it. Um, but again, <laughs> but again, we get. I, yeah. I guess, like you said so, in the chat, we don't have time for dissertations. <laughs> yeah, let, let me let me just real quick run through my notes here. Sure, sure. Uh, and then we can go nuts. <laughs> um, the, the the concepts I want to talk about are camp and kitsch which are sort of two sides of the same same coin and the only difference almost from a legal standpoint is intention mm-hmm. um, they're both over the top they're melodramatic content they completely fly in the face of good taste um, and what you might call mainstream aesthetics um, they may have some compelling core some compelling interesting narrative core they may have something that they're trying to say, um, but the setting is just all over the place. Mm-hmm. In terms of camp, the setting is intentionally all over the place. The setting is part of the message, usually, in terms of camp. They're poking their finger up in the nose of mainstream society and saying, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. So, you know, J- John Waters movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Devo, you know, very much getting up in your, your face and saying... You know, I eat filth. <laughs> um, <laughs> or as the, uh, I think the famous uh, divine line in one of those movies, like, "What are your political views?" And she replies, "Kill everyone now." <laughs> Which, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, the flip side of that is kitsch, which is basically all those things except um, you. You are left wondering whether it was done through uh, intentional means or through failure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, because kitsch, the the transgression of mainstream aesthetics is often completely unintentional. It's done through incompetence. Uh, it's done through a lack of a budget. Uh, it, it's done because the person just doesn't, you know, just, I said incompetence. So um, kitsch things are like kung fu movies where there's a language barrier and a culture barrier. Um and uh, I mentioned Ed Wood, so you can also think of The Room, uh, <laughs> uh, thing, movies like that. Um, uh, there's a great local institution, which if you're ever in the Northeast, I highly recommend checking out, called the Museum of Bad Art. It is located in front of a men's restroom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, you know, these are the things that you'd call so bad they're good. You know, that kind of thing. So, um, Lovecraft for me is probably in the kitsch area. Yeah. Um, I like, I love his work. His prose is beautiful. (laughs) It is extremely lush. Yeah. It sounds like a person who was 70 in in you know, 1890 wrote it. And the thing is, the thing has been, I think that's like, um, it's a matter for taste, but I think that's another reason why I have found his work compelling also. Like it's a kind of, yeah, it's a kind of writing that is not very common today. And is also, and it's also itself extremely difficult to pull off without being just awful. And I, I would compare, I would compare it to, have you ever read any Jack Vance? Have either of you read, science fiction author jack vance no okay no. I'm the, but oh you two are getting care packages in the mail um <laughs> this is, I, I think he's a great example of uh, of lush done right um but anyway i'm sorry yeah continue ben no no the, a, a lot of the the pulp authors had a, a lot of them that i, I have read 
I haven't read as many as I'd like because I have this podcast. Um, <laughs> I'm, I read nothing but books about witches being burned all the time. But, and I'm over anyway, here. I, I can't read nothing but great literature. It's awful. God damn it. It's awful. <laughs> Can I curse? I, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, go for it. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I uh, Well, I, I yeah, I, I do on the cannonball. So. Okay. Sweet. Sweet. Um, I, I, I'm from New Jersey. So I spend my entire show trying to keep my New Jersey under control. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> so, okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, his prose is... is but all, the, all these... Uh, you read two pulp novelists and they all have wildly different styles, which is... is fa- and none of them are right in terms of the mainstream at that time. Yeah. So I, I think that that itself is particularly fun. Um, but Lovecraft himself <laughs> is ridiculously repetitive. All of his... You know, most of his stories end up with someone stumbling on something and going insane, right? <laughs> right. He's got yeah. his own tropes. <laughs> uh, you know, he finds a toaster and he goes insane. <laughs> um, he's terrified of things that are taken for granted by, you know, modern society, like relativity theory, mi- minorities, and lady parts. And, um, <laughs> you know, in, in general, <laughs> his, the structure of his stories, as we've addressed... Uh, often fails utterly in terms of being coherent and you're you're left wondering was that intentional was he doing some sort of you know meta narrative or was you know is the fact that none of this makes sense part of the fact that the narrator's insane or is it just that Lovecraft was kind of a hack <laughs> writing for a pulp <laughs> right. thing and he was just kind of like ah oh, whatever they're fine I'll take it um so, you know, I see him as definitely kitsch, and I really enjoy him because I enjoy sitting there and trying to take apart how much of it was intentional, given the fact that you really can't assume intentionality with Lovecraft in any way. Because <laughs> um, he, you know, he he wasn't incompetent. He was really well-read, but there's just so much about him that, you know, he had a variety of mental health issues. He was extraordinarily sheltered. He basically was self-taught, so how much, you know, yes, he was well-read, but what did he, what was it he was reading? Right, right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so, the, so that's where that's I it. come from. And I just want to finish up by mentioning Poe's Law, which is something that's come off the internet, but uh, I think it's yeah. an important part of this conversation, which is that for me, I appreciate Lovecraft because, you know, sarcastically, I think he's a pitiful story. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly don't look to him as an example for my politics. And, you know, I, I basically, I'm able personally to appreciate him because he was basically harmless. Because he died, you know, unloved and in poverty. Hmm. And, you know, he he wrote a couple articles and op-eds that were probably not appreciated in local providence politics but in the grand scheme of things with everything else that was going on in the 40s like this guy wasn't exactly an opinion maker sure um that said as the popularity of lovecraft expands pose law comes into effect which essentially says that it's impossible to come up with a proposition that is obviously sarcasm in modern internet society because someone somewhere will take it seriously no matter how ridiculous or outrageous it might seem. Right. So, to me, saying that Lovecraft is, you know, not an example to follow 
because he's a racist and a misogynist and kind of a broken person, you know, is obvious. But there are people out there who may look at him as an example of a great racist writer, just their kind of guy, and yeah. that oh, makes me yeah, feel like are. I need to it's... take a shower. You're right, right. No, I... no, there are. There, there are. There, there are sincere readings of him, uh, either in the racist vein or in that sort of um, dark enlightenment vein, that yeah. look at this as a kind of Nietzschean response to the void. I don't see that at all. I, I honestly don't... Okay, he... He fast he he's kind of fascinating. Okay, as an academic, mm-hmm. because he's working so hard to to stress his credentials. Like yes. I mean, that's one of the other weird things about Call of Cthulhu is that the the format of it, like the 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 genre structure of it, uh, is kind of like detective novel, but apparently for the really smart elite intelligence yes. um he makes all these stabs at academia but he so desperately he, wants to be part of it but yeah, you can yeah. tell from a mile away that this is not academic at all there's no part of this that that coheres to any kind of academic understanding yeah. so it's i mean it's 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 he's showing that sort of autodidacticism but that's you know that's an interesting part of him, but overall, I, I don't know. I I find him so extraordinarily problematic, and the the writing is usually so turgid, and the stories are so repetitive that I I really don't see why it has a following. But I think your 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 sort of kitsch explanation mixed in with uh, what I think Daniel was talking about with the the ubiquity of these ideas. And the culture being spread out through means other than his writing itself. It's like yeah. Lovecraftian is more of a draw than the actual stories of Lovecraft. Yeah, in some kind absolutely. Of well, and I'd I say that's true. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think you're hitting on it there, Claude. And I guess this is where I'll say where I guess I'm left. With, and the thing is, like Ben, I'm I'm very much a I'm very much a guy who appreciates some good kitsch. Like I am 100 percent right on board with you. Um, which is an appreciation of the of the kitsch ethos and and finding yeah. finding joy in things that no one ever thought anyone would ever watch again. Um, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm deadly serious. Like it's it's it's, it's literally the, the the purest reaction of joy that I have to anything is laughing at how ridiculous yeah. something that no one ever assumed anyone would watch forty years later. You know is. Um, but I think uh, Claude, you're hitting on something, and I think the. You're hitting on, it's it's the Lovecraftian is where the appeal is, and what does that mean in today's day and age? I think it has everything to do with the. I think it has everything to do with the kind of cosmic alienation element. Um, I think that's what people respond to the most, and I, I know that's that's what I've responded to the most in my sort of um, in my my history with uh, uh, Lovecraft stories, and like I've said, like you know, Lovecraft was was absolutely my window into some other writers um, working in similar veins that I enjoy a lot more, but um, I'll still, you know, I'll still read a Lovecraft story. And to me, the, the, the value or the, the compelling part of it that I get out of it is that that horror of facing up to the complete. And, and as a human being, like as a human social, as a social ape, which is who we are and we cannot escape it as a social ape. Who's, 
whose body has evolved, whose, whose entire being has evolved to interrelate with other beings to the extent that we, we project personalities onto things that do not have them all the time. I think the, yeah. the real horror element that Lovecraft capably executes and that really draws people in is driving home the idea that the universe is absolutely under the control of things that have never even bothered to consider caring about something like you. That you will never, that you will never cross the mind of the thing that destroys you. And that's a very different kind of horror than being the subject of, than being the prey of a predator. Which is another kind of, like, that's a primal horror. That's, you know, because we're, we were terrified of being devoured by leopards, and today the slasher movie is, you know, a, a, you know that's, that's, a, that's a, you are prey of a predator. What kind of, it's a, it's a very different kind of horror, it's a very different kind of facing up to doom that comes with the idea that completely impersonal forces will grind you to dust and no one will remember yeah. that you ever lived and that's I think a very 20th century horror that carries through to the 21st and I, and I to me I think that's where a lot of the love and of course there, there's the surface elements of like yeah gross tentacles and insane and monsters that drive yeah. you insane <laughs> you know, that's fun too but I, yeah. but I think um, that, that would be the I guess the appeal that would be the to me the 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 kernel that attracts people to the yeah. Lovecraftian idea. The, the nugget there that he was trying to convey, maybe that you know, is worth cutting through everything else in order to to get to. And it's 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 actually such a hard horror to wrap your mind around mm -hmm. that it, it's almost never done completely right. Yeah, even yeah. by Lovecraft. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, he's, there's still people who are menaced and have to flee from something. You know. Like it's still yeah, there. and yeah. the the whole like you know mixed race interlocutors is sort of a distraction, honestly, from right, that right narrative it, that he's actually trying to do right. Well, but, it, but, that's, he's, that's, but he's trying to do the lost. He's he's trying to do the miscegenation horror, but I think it's less conscientious the 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 the, the cosmic horror. I think I, I think he's trying to do the yeah. race horror, but he's also touching upon yeah. the. Uh, the thing that we're responding to a little more uh sort of almost right. not exactly incidentally but it is tied up together but i think yeah, yeah, yeah sorry <laughs> I, mean, I, I i think it is tied up together more than than is comfortable at least for me okay because you you can like i see what y'all are talking about that that kernel there of of basically being crushed by by a more powerful thing that is not cognizant that you are even human, which I, I mean strikes me as the 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 inverse of his own othering. Um, you, but you could. All right, do you know when I feel that horror? Mm -hmm. When I'm I'm. I felt that when I was reading uh, Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for me, that cosmic horror is the the stringent nihilism hmm. of Nazi fascism. Right, right. Um, I, I maybe that's just an effect of of living when we live, but I I don't need to imagine scaly monsters in order to get there. I just have to look at history. Yeah. 
Well, um, that was the future yeah. for Lovecraft, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it, it's you know I I I, I think. I don't know. I guess living where where we live now, for me, it's not. It's not can't be fun. It's the reality. Yeah, it's it's less yeah. of a it's less of a a mental exercise. Um, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And to be on and to be honest, that's why I suggested this episode. Oh wow! <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, you know, I, I'm sitting here, you know thinking you know i love lovecraft but then i'm watching tv and there's actually people with tiki torches yeah. on the streets right, and right. stuff and it's like yeah this so it fun it's anymore yeah yeah it's it, and and to some degree i feel like we this is this is dark but i think we are at a cultural moment that is very cognizant with with Lovecraft's own, it's mm-hmm. it, w- very cognate with mm-hmm. with Lovecraft's own, yeah, and that's what makes this not something that I would revisit for um, for affective purposes. Yeah, uh, I, I, it's it's interesting from a kind of cultural studies perspective. Yeah, because one of the things that that you know I I, I didn't get a chance to talk about, and I'm not going to belabor the point, but so much of his writing about you know Ben, I, I I think you you aptly point to the way his misogyny finds outlet in these kinds of creatures that he creates, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. and they're also extraordinarily excremental. Yes, and the the kinds of people who worship them are also broached in in excremental terms, and that gets at this kind of psychology of disgust which is connected to racism Mm -hmm. to to othering we find the other disgusting and displace all of our own you know disgusting tendencies onto that other that's kind of the root back there there's something fascinating about this from a, a, a sort of cultural study standpoint but i don't know it's just not fun for me yeah but I'm not trying to say it's it can't be fun for anybody. <laughs> well, I think I think you hit it. It's I just think, you know, it, it, I, yeah. I think you hit upon it there, Claude, by by saying like it's not something that you would go to for effective purposes, and I, right, and I think that right. ties into sort of the broader. You know, that's what we talk about on the Cannonball all the time. Is that yeah, um, yeah? You know, we we were sort of. It, you know what Bloom was attempting to do, and what I think we were doing a lot better than Bloom. Honestly, I'm going to toot our own horn and say we have a much <laughs> better so. understanding of everything than that guy, that that desiccated old husk of a man. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, but but that is that is to say that the kind of um, reading for the effective purpose. If you're going to read something for the purpose of getting a thrill or an enjoyment, or if there's some compelling reason, you know. Then that's how. Then that's why you're going to read it. If, and if it doesn't work for you that yeah. way, it doesn't work for you that way. And that's you know, right. that, that and that's all there is to it. You know, it's it's the kind of thing like I, I, I kind of feel similarly about the fact that I I do enjoy the stories of uh, Robert E. Howard, right? Conan the Barbarian stories. I think they're absolutely yeah. terrific as stories. I think I enjoy the affect that I experience as I read them. He didn't go as out of his way to be as racist as H.P. Lovecraft, but it's still really damn racist a lot of the time yeah. because he yeah. always, always, always relies on Orientalist depictions of non-Western peoples. He always, always, always leans on racist stereotypes of physiognomy for his descriptions of characters. It's just there. Yeah. Um, but, oh, sorry. I, I think this... No, and I, I just want to say that this is something that all of the 
pulp writers that I've read, they were drawing on the trash science of the time <laughs> to write the trash literature. Yeah, right, and that time. includes the trash race <laughs> you know, science. I, I You're absolutely, absolutely right. I, I absolutely adore um, Princess of Mars, the the, the Barsoom series, the, yeah. John Carter and the Savage Apes yeah, of Mars. Yeah. And it's all, I mean, it's based on a piece of science that was that was provably wrong a hundred years before it was written. <laughs> right, right. But, it, you know, you know the, the canals of Mars and, and all that. Yeah. And, you know, it was complete trash. But you're right, but, it, but, it's a, but it's a transporting affect, though. I mean, I'm, yeah, yes. I'm with you. Yeah. But I, yeah, I think this was, fellas, this was a, a wonderful conversation. I, I really think, Claude, thank you so much for, um, I guess, staking out the, uh, the, the anti-Lovecraft poll here and, well, I, I feel like if any episode gets me death threats, it's probably going to be this one. <laughs> well, I will happily lay down my life to protect you, Claude. You are a national treasure, and I will hear I will hear nothing, uh, no ill words about you. And the same goes for you, Ben. Totally. This has been marvelous. I, 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 I want to I tell you, the audience, I don't, you know, I, I don't know how much Agora is built around personalities, but um, <laughs> but I've been a, a correspondent via social media and email with uh, with Ben for uh, for years now, and this was the first time we actually had a live conversation. And yes, Ben, yes. you are a tremendous conversationalist and a and a just a stupendous interlocutor. And I I appreciate you, you helping us cover this uh, this contentious and weird territory. Um, of, yes. of Lovecraft and uh, and his legacy, man. This is this has been tremendous. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm a great admirer of the Cannonball and uh, other shows, uh, and you know, so uh, this is great for me too. And I'm Claude. I'm really glad you were willing to uh, <laughs> serve your role for this one because <laughs> well, I think no, it's, I, it contributed obviously to making I, this a great show. I loved it. No, because I really was curious. You had this, the, this. You know, we've kind of been. Uh, I guess before we went on air, you were you were playing with this idea of kitchen camp, and I, I think you articulated that you know extraordinarily well. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And and I understand your position. I, and I guess that's what it comes down to. I guess this is what Daniel was trying to say: is that sometimes the aesthetic is personal mm -hmm. and yeah. I, I'm not trying to blast yours. I'm just saying it's not mine. Uh, but totally <laughs> I have enjoyed one of my favorite books is Malloy by Samuel Beckett. The first hundred pages of which are an unindented paragraph. Um, <laughs> that's one of the best things I've ever read in my entire life. I don't yeah. expect anyone to mm -hmm. get behind that one. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, but yeah, thank you guys both so much. Uh, this was uh, a whole lot of fun. And uh, if anyone's still listening at this point, go read Lovecraft or don't. Yeah. yeah. But but what you do have to do is listen to uh, uh, Wittenberg de Westphalia uh, by our good friend Ben Jacobs here, uh, our, our Agora uh, sister show. Um, it's absolutely tremendous. Anyone who is at all interested in history, you'll absolutely love it. Because Ben's passion for the topic of history in general and, and his commitment to doing it right is just truly phenomenal and honestly a lot rarer than you might think in the podcast world. Um, so please check out Wittenberg to Westphalia. Thank you very much. And uh, just a quick note, if you're interested in what my favorite kitschy movie is, oh, yeah. it is Bruce Lee, Strikes, Bruce Lee Strikes Back from the Grave. Check it out. <laughs> it's fantastic. I absolutely will. <laughs> All right. All right, man. Well, uh, I guess I'll, uh, I'll 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 sign us off here, and uh, thank you everybody for listening. This has been the the Cannonball Special Agoraphobia episode, and uh, we'll see y'all next time. Good night, everybody. A warm welcome back 
to those of you who made it back. And a little bit of advice to take with you. Okay, everyone. Welcome back. I hope you're still here with me. And uh, I hope you enjoyed that, because I did have fun going back over it. So, I think it's fair to say that despite being only two years old, this is the segment that has aged the least well of all of the agoraphobia stuff that I've done. Not that I don't basically stand behind this conversation, it's just that these last two years have seen a lot of change in terms of both my understanding of American history and in terms of the situation of the Lovecraft fandom. To give a bit of context, in 2018, the Lovecraft fandom was kind of ripping itself apart. On the one hand, you had sort of a range of people in the wider horror and sci-fi communities who were somewhere between wanting to talk about Lovecraft's racism and wanting to consign him to the dustbin of history and pee-pee on the ashes. On the other side of the coin, there was a spectrum of people, some of whom were literal actual Nazis, and some of whom were okay talking about Lovecraft's racism, but thought the whole conversation was going a bit too far. These people got very heated in their discussions, kind of broke into two camps and started um, bashing each other on a very personal level. Lest we think this was a simple conflict, one of the leaders of the this-is-all-gone-too-far side was uh, an individual named S.T. Joshi, a person of color himself who had made an academic career out of addressing Lovecraft's work seriously, including directly confronting his racism and misogyny. It wasn't a simple situation, but it did lead to a lot of grown adults acting like children. Unfortunately, that definitely included S.T. Joshi. Much of that tantrum throwing ended up happening here in Providence, home of H.P. Lovecraft and home of the on-again, off-again Necronomicon, a fan convention for Lovecraft that has been annoyingly disrupted in multiple years by this conflict, uh, often by S.T. Joshi himself acting like a toddler. In any case... This was all in the background when a bunch of actual modern Nazis started marching around Charlotte, North Carolina, carrying tiki torches, chanting anti-Semitic slogans, beating up random black people on the street, and in one case plowing a car into counter-protesters. It was in this context that Dan, Cloud, and myself decided to talk about Lovecraft. Um, let me fast forward two years. The events in Charlotte have kicked off a large discussion about race in the United States, particularly concerning statues, and this debate has helped me do some research into an area I didn't even realize I was missing a background in. Just as importantly, the last two years saw the creation of two extremely excellent podcasts, uh, Susan Stevenson's American Epistles and Nia Clark's Dreams of Black Wall Street. Links in the show notes. Podcast footnote. Didn't think we were going to get one of these in here, huh? Until this past week, Nia Clark's show was called Black Wall Street 1921. I've plugged it in this show before. In any case, um, she's reached the end of the initial run, which was the original Black Wall Street story, and she's decided to keep going. Uh, and so she's changing the name to reflect the fact that it's not just about the one event, it's about a more widespread thing. So, Dreams of Black Wall Street. Go check it out. It is an amazing show. End podcast footnote. So, having been taken to school a little bit, I am even less impressed with Lovecraft than I was before, uh, at least as a person. 
The period of his productivity between, say, 1919 and his death in 1937 was a period of uniquely awful racism in the United States. And we had slavery. I was taught in school that legal racism against black people had sort of flared back up after the failure of Reconstruction, and then just sort of smoldered on until it was eventually rubbed out in the 1960s. While that simple story itself contains a lot of unarticulated suffering, they managed to entirely omit the fact that the interwar period, some of the worst atrocities of U.S. history, in particular the Red Summer of 1919, when uh, thousands of heroic black soldiers who were returning from World War I were massacred by their fellow Americans. And of course then there's 1921, when an entire wealthy black city was wiped off the map in a large-scale pogrom that included the use of military aircraft to bomb and strafe unarmed civilians. So, far from being simply a reflection of his upbringing, Lovecraft was a man who reflected the zeitgeist of his times in the worst way possible. My general view of him basically holds. He was a gifted loser who desperately wanted to be given recognition for the intellectual gifts he undoubtedly had. But his lack of formal training and his conservative and deeply sheltered upbringing led him to embrace pseudo-intellectual and pseudo-scientific theories, including phrenology, eugenics, and racism in general. Uh, at least at the start of his career, you can think of him as being, you know, sort of uh, an edgelord. Uh, you know, we said that in the conversation, actually, but the, the, that con comment holds even more true now. You could think of him as being a flat earther or uh, anti-vaxxer or something like that. There's also an element of tragedy in there, though. Pictures of him with Sonia Green show a man who was happy. He was an intelligent person and a gifted writer, and if things had worked out just a little different financially, he could have been on a different path. But that just didn't happen. And so instead of being an ignorant racist capable of redemption, he became a bitter nihilistic, increasingly inward-looking racist, uh, letting himself waste away in, uh, in his, his home for fear of the outside world. And yet, this isn't the end of the story, because there's one more major thing that has happened in the last two years. As we said in that episode, the Lovecraft phenomenon is really not just about Lovecraft. His work became something of a genre into itself, in which the horror and sci-fi writers of the world basically had a big old sandbox called the Cthulhu Mythos, in which they could construct their own stories. The biggest addendum to this episode is that in the last two years, we've finally, finally seen black creators enter the sandbox and start to produce their own work in this genre, and the results have been frankly spectacular. Of course, the standout entry is Lovecraft Country. Um, it is a HBO series now about a black, uh, about three black people from Chicago traveling to New England in the 1950s to confront eldritch horrors, both cosmic and terrestrial, while on the way being forced to confront the more mundane horrors of American racism. What is wonderful about this is, well, let me insert a quote from the author whose book the current TV series is based on. This is Matt Ruff in an interview with Rise Up. Quote, What's fascinating about Lovecraft's fiction is he had a very specific set of fears and dreads, but he also tapped into this more universal sense of fear of people who are different from us and who have no mercy for us, said Ruff. 
So you can take a lot of his story ideas and plug it into a black protagonist, and it actually still works. They've just got somewhat different people coming after them. The fear is more realistically grounded in the kinds of hate crimes that actually occur in the real world. End quote. Now, Ruff himself is white, but the TV series has been developed uh, by a woman of color, and most of much of the core cast is uh, people of color. Uh, so this one's being given credit as a um, as a step forward for people of color working in the genre. I think an even better example of what's going on with the Lovecraft world right now, even if it's less well known, is the 2016 book The Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval. This is based on the horror in Red Hook, one of Lovecraft's most racist and horrible stories. But the twist in the updated version uh, by Victor Laval is, uh, and I should say spoilers here, if you're a fan of Lovecraftian fiction, you should go check it out and maybe don't listen to the next 30 seconds. The twist is that Cthulhu only drives white people insane. Why? Well, in Lovecraft, the horror comes from the realization that humans are not the center of the universe. But only white people would be driven insane by that. For black people, it's just your average Tuesday. So, in any case, I just think that's a great twist. In any case, the point of all this is that a good chunk of what makes Lovecraft relevant today is actually the big sandbox that his mythos became. And that sandbox is finally being integrated. As a result, the stories that are coming out of that sandbox are more interesting and more relevant than they've been in actually a couple decades. I'm certainly not saying that racism in the Lovecraft fandom is over. That would be a frankly absurd thing to say in 2020. There are still those real literal actual Nazis. But in a very small way, things have gotten a little bit less awful in this one corner of popular culture. And it would have been a terrible disservice if I did an episode with an hour and a half of conversation about Lovecraft, and then I didn't mention these events surrounding Lovecraft Country and the Ballad of Black Tom. Okay, I think that's more than enough of talking about Lovecraft, and now it's time for me to talk like Lovecraft. Now, this final segment is going to require no commentary or notes, as I only did it last year, and so, you know, pretty much everything is still the same. But this is something of my own homage to Lovecraft set in the sewage conditions of the Middle Ages. It was a lot of fun to write and record, and of course, Andrew, uh, my editor, really helped make it come together on the editing side. Um, I should just give a big... Shout out to Andrew in general, Andrew Fancook. Um, he won't be editing this one, but he edits most of my stuff. I refer to him a lot. I'm hoping you've all listened to the whole show and you remember. But, you know, he's a good editor. He could use some work. He graduated into the pandemic this year, and his post-college plans have been entirely screwed up. So if you guys need any work, uh, have any work for editors, uh, audio editors and, and the like... Uh, you know, hit him up. Uh, you can get in touch with me. Um, I'm already putting a lot of links in the show notes, so just, just get in touch with me. Anyway, since I won't be doing any comments after this segment, let me just say thank you so much for listening for yet another year uh, for these two episodes. Um, this episode ended up being a lot more weird and grim than I intended it to be when I originally came up with this whole concept, but I didn't want to wait 
on the Ryan Stitt thing. So, um, thank you for bearing with me. Um, hopefully no one was too off put by the, uh, the modern stuff going on with the Lovecraft thing. Um, anyway, so just thanks, just really thanks so much for listening. Uh, thanks to all the donors and patrons and everything. But thanks to everybody for listening. This would be a really grim, depressing project if I were just doing it by myself and no one was listening. And, uh, and instead, it's just been extremely, uh, extremely wonderful for all these years. And I'm, I'm hoping to keep going. I'm definitely going to get to Westphalia. You guys, just, you, you guys just wait. I'll get there. Finger guns. Anyway. So, thank you for listening. And tune in next time uh, when we will get back to our discussion of women in the Middle Ages. But for now, enjoy the last segment that I'm going to be sharing of agoraphobia. And for this year's segment, you got to go to the um, Agora Podcast Network feed and listen to actual this year's agoraphobia. That one's good. It's about Scotland, which is always fun. Okay, I'll stop now. Next, we have Benjamin Jacobs from the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast, who, as always, is looking to make a splash by unloading yet another explosive story in urgent need of expression. In my dream, I saw vermin, rats feeding on grubs, their tails entwined with worms and maggots, while midges swarmed and were, in their turn, chased by flies. The warm, damp air rose like a horrible embrace, and within it, I heard a low growl. I woke with a start. In the bed, as usual, were my wife, Beatrice, our three children, the new apprentice, and my wife's maidservant. All were disturbed by my sudden violent action. The servants, used to such events, pressed their heads into their straw mattresses and hoped to find more sleep before the daylight hours or their master's orders disturbed them. The children whimpered slightly, but soon they too were asleep. Beatrice, suspecting me of amorous intent, sharply reminded me that it was the eve of a fasting day and suggested that I return to sleep. She then aimed a few whispered obscenities in my direction before regaining her repose. Once the household was settled back into their slumber, I arose and sought relief for the true cause of my nocturnal disturbance. In terms even more harsh than those used by my beloved wife, my bowels had reproached my slumber with an unaccustomed insistence on relief from their necessities. Making my way to the chamber pot, I found it already partially occupied with earlier leavings, but my discomfort did not permit me the time to empty the pot out the window, before leaving a deposit of my own. As I crouched over the pot, I found the act took on a level of unaccustomed violence, and soon the pain had spread like fire through my abdomen. My thoughts strayed involuntarily to my conversation with the neighborhood butcher earlier that day. His shop had been closed for several weeks, and he reported that he had suffered from such painful urgencies. The apothecary, joining our conversation unbidden, named the condition as the bloody flux, and described a variety of long-winded cures for the malady. Spurred on by his outpouring of verbosity, the butcher and I concluded our business and went our separate ways. A cry escaped my lips, which, together with the usual noise accompanying such an act of nature, once again woke the remaining occupants of the bed. The servants swore under their breaths, hoping that neither I nor God would hear their blasphemies, though they would be disappointed on both counts. As the children awoke and began to fuss, Beatrice was less circumspect, 
Far from providing the sympathy that one might hope for from a wife who finds her husband in discomfort, my dear wife instructed me in no uncertain terms that if I did not repair to the basement lavatory voluntarily, using the stairs, she would ensure that I headed in that direction involuntarily, using the window. Then she turned her attention to the young ones and attempted to return them to their slumber. It took me more than a minute to comply with this request, despite the continued remonstrances of my beloved partner in all things good and bad, due to the physical frailty that had come upon me. Nonetheless, as soon as I was able, I gingerly arose and headed for the basement with the chamber pot, which was now quite over full. Leaving a trail of reeking filth in my wake, I made my way down the stairs to the basement. As I passed the first floor, I considered waking my journeymen and requesting them to bring me a candle, but decided against it. Having two of the three parts of the household cross with me already, I decided to avoid angering the remaining third. As I entered the cellar, the damp, cool air of that space rose to meet me. The smell of onions, garlics, and leeks from the root cellar mingled with the smell of mildew and the night soil in the lavatory as my bare feet met the packed earth and pebbles of the floor. Between the sounds of my feet and my focus on other... Weightier matters, I did not notice the usual nighttime noises of the cellar, the low constant sound of chirping and squeaking, and the padded steps of small feet. The basement was pitch black, with barely a shred of moonlight following me down the stairs from the front hall. Approaching the lavatory, I placed the chamber pot on the ground and found the wooden cover of the cesspit, as much by touch and smell and memory as by sight. Feeling for the wooden cover, I pushed the round plank away that I might access my home's only permanent facility for the relief of natural urgencies. The strong smell of night soil rose to my nostrils, and I prayed, without much hope I must admit, that my time in the lavatory would be short. The butcher had been sick for two weeks, and the thought of spending that much time in the dark and reek of the basement was not a welcome thought. Retrieving the chamber pot, I felt my way back to the lip of the cesspit. Placing my toes on one of the dry stones that made up the outside wall of the cesspit, I extended the chamber pot and began to empty its contents. I did this with my customary backwards lean, as much in the hope of keeping my nose clear of the reek as to keep my balance. This, too, was a vain hope. Suddenly, I felt a growl come from within myself. As my bowels began once again to demand my attention, I was convulsed with another outrage of abdominal pain. Involuntarily, I bent at the waist, thrusting my head forward over the pit and loosening my hold on the chamber pot. I barely perceived the pot leaving my fingers and plunging into the gaping void below. At first, I heard only a muffled splash as it hit the viscous layer of congealed filth at the top of the pit. Before I could begin even considering the cost of replacing this necessary and intimate household item, my attention was grabbed by a low noise. To my alarm... I found the growl had left my innards and was now emerging from the pit itself, over which I was still partially suspended by my abdominal agonies. Alarmed, I sought to lean away from the pit, but before I could, I felt a warm embrace akin to a warm, wet blanket rising from the void below. Now I could see, as if by some unnatural light, the people of the pit disturbed by my actions, rats and mice climbing down the walls to pick grubs from the top layers, their tails entwined with the worms and maggots of that city of filth. Flies chased midges, and midges pestered the rats, but all turned their attention to see the one who had disturbed their hellish society. A shout rose in rage, but this shout was met by the suffocating growl, or gurgle, a guttural sound of low malice and despair that could be none other than the Dark One himself. His arms extended through the darkness to take me. I felt his minions around me, buzzing around my ears, crawling up my legs, the sickening warmth around me. I awoke with a start. 
As my head hit the stone wall of the cesspit, I tried to scream as my face plunged into the filth, but my mouth and nostrils were filled with the putrid remains of a thousand household dinners. The worms covered me. All was darkness. If you'd like to hear more about life in the Middle Ages, check out Wittenberg's Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation, where we're taking a deep, deep dive on European history. Uh, this entire thing is about poop. A warm welcome back to those of you who made it back, and a little bit of advice to take with you before you go. Not all knowledge is safe, and some things you can't unhear. The smartest of you will count your blessings and stay clear of dark corners and dangerous downloads. But those of you more daring who laugh in the face of fear will undoubtedly be back like a moth drawn to the flame for the next installment of Agoraphobia. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.